Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, Habitat for Humanity will be dedicating not one but two homes for deserving families this weekend, and their work is far from over as 2021 is shaping up to be the agency's busiest year ever. Also in our Throwback Thursday segment this morning, the Ohio State Highway Patrol has launched an online distracted driving dashboard to track related crashes. Are you more distracted than you think you are behind the wheel? For younger drivers, a comfort level with technology and the inherent invincibility complex can be a deadly combination when it comes to distracted driving. And because our differences make us stronger, how to start conversations about embracing diversity, change, and inclusivity in our communities. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, June 24th, 2021. We like to start the morning with the most buzzworthy stories of the day, and this will certainly generate some conversation uh, regarding the requirements of certain entities to require employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19 as a condition of ongoing employment. This has been a rather controversial uh, part of the uh, post-pandemic era here. Uh, There have already been reports of uh, hospital systems and other companies requiring their employees to get vaccinated, uh, which they are legally allowed to do. There's no law that says that they can't. But this is the next level of that that will generate, I would imagine, a lot of discussion on the news shows and so on. San Francisco announced yesterday that all city employees will have to be vaccinated and could potentially be fired if they refuse to do so. It is the first major U.S. city to impose a COVID vaccine mandate for municipal employees. Now, they were quick to point out that exemptions will be provided for religious and medical reasons, but the San Francisco Chronicle reports the mandate will take effect when the FDA gives full approval for the vaccines, which is expected here in the not-too-distant future, and workers will have 10 weeks to get their shots if they haven't already gotten them. The three that are currently available from Moderna, Pfizer, and J&J are currently under emergency use authorization. The Chronicle cited uh, Carol Eisen, director of the city's Human Resources Department, as saying, quote, it's about protecting the city as an employer from what we deem to be an unacceptable risk, unquote. So if you think that this has been a controversial policy for hospital systems, healthcare facilities, and certain companies to require their employees to be vaccinated. Now you've got a municipality, a government entity requiring employees to be vaccinated. That is going to cause uh, or generate some spirited discussion, I would imagine. One of the certainly one of the most buzzworthy stories to start your day. Speaking of the pandemic, a lot of folks, uh, obviously, during the course of the pandemic, spent at least some time working from home. We are doing the program from home. We have been uh, doing the program from the home studio uh, here for most of the uh, most of this week. And uh, 
we've been kind of bouncing back and forth between the bunker and the main studio at Lake Cascades for several months now. And it turns out that those who work from home uh, work 45 minutes less per day than their co-workers who were working from the office, at least in the UK. In Great Britain, the Office of National Statistics released data that shows people who work from home, on average, spend six and a half hours a day on work. By comparison, those commuting to the office spend around seven hours and 15 minutes a day working. When you account for breaks and lunch and all of that, it's actual, actually seven hours and 15 minutes on average of working time per day, but 45 minutes less for those who work from home, which is kind of interesting because we know that productivity is actually increased. That's another thing that the data has showed, that people working from home are generally actually more productive than uh, those who are in the office. So they're working less and being even more productive. And I'm thinking, uh, when I saw this data, the first thing that came to my mind is for those who are working from home, get ready because your boss is going <laughs> to load you up with even more work <laughs> to do. If you're being more productive and you're working 45 minutes less, that means we can probably give you an hour's more worth of work to get done and it'll all even out, right? I don't know. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Um, speaking of working from home versus working at the office, Researchers at the University of South Australia have found in a study, and this is probably not a surprise, full-time workers employed at places that fail to prioritize their employees' mental health have a 300% increased risk of being diagnosed with depression. Again, probably not surprising if your company does not prioritize mental health issues, you're probably more likely to be diagnosed with a mental health issue. Uh, researchers say the poor workplace mental health can be traced back to poor management practices, along with uh, misplaced priorities and values, which then flows through to high job demands and low resources. The author of the study, Dr. Amy Zadow, says evidence shows that companies who fail to reward or acknowledge their employees for hard work impose unreasonable demands on their workers and do not give them autonomy are placing their staff at a much greater risk of depression. It is not uncommon for everyone in the same unit to experience burnout as a result, which is kind of interesting. Even if one or two people on a team uh, have that frustration or have that form of depression that it brings everybody on the team down. So something to keep in mind. And by the way, this is another related item uh, from the University of Toronto's Rutman School of Management. Researchers there examined more than 6,000 reviews from the job website Glassdoor about employees, what they said about their work-life balance, and compared that with data looking at career advancement, job mobility, and promotion records. And what they find, again, this is probably not a surprise, having a good work-life balance makes for happy and healthy employees. 
but they find it can be bad for job performance if the balance is too good, which is the surprising part of this. Excuse me. Uh, What they essentially are saying, if workers have too much leisure time and are too relaxed, you got too much work-life balance, too much of a good thing is not a good thing. They find that now they focus specifically on financial analysts at Goldman Sachs. They use that as kind of their group that they looked at. So those were the individuals in the profession that were studied. They found that the analysts in question did their best work when their work-life balance was rated around 3.5 on a five-point scale, uh, basically having an okay work-life balance. A professor at the Rotman School uh, says if you have too much work-life balance, that means you're not focusing enough on work. A little bit of stress is probably a good thing, but if it's too much, then the pressure becomes daunting and you can't do anything. So, kind of interesting Again, it goes back to the productivity of workers at home versus in the office, the priority that bosses and employers put on mental health issues, and the entire work-life balance uh, in general. I just thought that was it. Too much of a good thing is not a good thing. And now we have more proof. And, of course, we have to uh, point this out. Uh, because every day there is the story, there's another doomsday story. This may be what kills us, ultimately. This may be the demise of mankind. So definitely one of the most buzzworthy stories, one of the first things you need to know this morning. This may be what does does in the human race. Astronomers reportedly have discovered a large object moving from the outer reaches of the solar system and approaching Earth. It is a comet known as 2014 UN 271, and scientists say it is the size of a small dwarf planet, an estimated 81 to 230 miles in diameter. That's a pretty wide range, 81 to 230 miles in diameter. So they're not exactly sure, and uh, that may be because it's still way out there. In the far reaches of the universe, scientists expect it will be as close as Saturn's orbit within the next decade. So it's a long way from reaching Earth, but it is headed our way. It is currently orbiting near Neptune, and it is impossible to see without a telescope. But it is headed our way, and it could be as big as 230 miles in diameter. So, there you go. Because we always have to have at least one story about our impending doom. <laughs> so, so there you are this morning. Some of the uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News, I'm Matt Demchek. The WTOL 11 first alert forecast. Mostly sunny today with a high of 86, partly cloudy tonight, a low of 71. A man is facing a variety of charges after a drug task force searched his home in Fostoria. The Seneca County Drug Task Force Metric Enforcement Unit, along with additional officers from Fostoria and Tiffin, executed a drug-related search warrant at a residence on Northview Drive in Fostoria. Authorities say they found suspected cocaine, crack cocaine, items indicative of drug trafficking, 
a stolen gun, U.S. currency, and criminal tools. A 45-year-old man was arrested. Get more on our website. The Ohio Supreme Court has ruled that school districts must provide police-level training to employees before they can carry a gun at school. At issue was a policy adopted by Madison local schools in Butler County in southwest Ohio. The district voted to allow armed school employees after a 2016 shooting in which two students were shot and wounded by a 14-year-old boy. A group of parents sued the district in 2018 to prevent teachers from being armed without extensive training. The state high court ruled 4-3 to three that armed school employees must undergo an approved basic peace officer training program or have 20 years experience as a police officer. Dave James, in News. Two Republican state lawmakers reportedly got into a tense confrontation at a Columbus restaurant two weeks ago over the now historic vote to expel Larry Householder from the Ohio House. The Toledo Blade reports that State Rep Bill Seitz of Cincinnati confronted State Rep John Cross of Kenton at Lindy's Restaurant a week before the vote to oust Householder. Seitz was against removing Householder and Cross was in favor of it. Both men confirmed the altercation to the newspaper, but it's unclear if the encounter was physical or strictly verbal. Blanchard Valley Health System sponsored a blood drive at First Presbyterian Church on South Main Street in Findlay. We caught up with Marty after she donated. I would just encourage everyone to consider giving blood. It is a quick thing to do, a way you can assist the hospitals in providing blood for patients who need it. Marty says she started giving blood when she was 18 years old and has donated throughout her entire adult life. We have a link on our website where you can find a blood drive near you. And get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. And now our cover story this morning. Habitat for Humanity is going to be dedicating not one, but two new homes for deserving families this weekend. And their work is far from over. Executive Director Wendy McCormick is with us on the line this morning. Wendy, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. This is a uh, big deal uh, coming up this weekend because, like we said, not one but two homes that you are dedicating, first of all. I I agree, and thanks for having us, Chris. It's uh, just going to be a beautiful weekend as we celebrate with two families who've been working very, very hard as well as over 600 volunteers who came together to build two homes simultaneously in just the last six weeks. This is house number 46 and 47 for Finley and Hancock County for the Carter and Campbell families. And they are amazing. They've worked so hard and we just can't wait to share these blessings with the community and say, thank you. Also a part of, as a part of the dedication, you're going to be recognizing some of those volunteers uh, who have, uh, have helped with so many, many uh, builds and projects over the years. We are. We have a special thank you to Jane and Gary Hemminger, who have been not only, of course, uh, staunch Habitat supporters, uh, they literally have helped fund uh, foundation after foundation for us and our signature events where folks buy different pieces of the home. Uh, so they are literally the foundations that we've been building upon but just a thank you to them in general uh, for all their philanthropic support of the community. They really do care about neighbors, which is, of course, what Habitat's all about mm-hmm. and how they've lifted this entire community and engaged uh, everyone to make Finley a better place to live, work and play. And so it's just a short ceremony, a way for us to say thank you to everyone who helped us build. But also, of course, thanking Jane and Gary for their tremendous support of our community. And as we mentioned, uh, your work 
for 2021 is far from over. This is shaping up to be your busiest year ever. You've got more uh, builds, more projects uh, going on. We do. When we moved in uh, just a little over a year and a half ago into a home of our own, and we are becoming more and more of a stable organization, we said, how can we do more and do more faster? And our board has risen to the challenge, and we are doubling production uh, from two homes a year to four homes in 2021. We're also looking to increase our critical home repair program. In fact, I'm hiring for a critical repair manager right now. If anybody's interested, uh, we'd love to talk with you. But we just want to serve more families now and faster. Uh, we just completed a housing study with a collaboration with Regional Planning, the Community Foundation, and the City of Finley. And uh, there's a 250-unit deficit of single-family homes that are affordable. And Habitat sees themselves as being a critical partner in that process to fill that gap. And uh, we need your help to do that. We need the volunteers. We need the donations. We just want to serve. That's one of the things I was going to ask. I mean, it's one thing to say we want to uh, double our efforts, literally double our efforts, do four builds a year instead of two. And uh, as you mentioned, continue with the uh, critical repair program and so on. It's one thing to say we want to do that. It's another uh, to recognize the need within the and talk a little bit about the need uh, for that within the community. When you say that there is a dramatic deficit in the number of affordable homes or the amount of affordable housing, how do you define that? Sure. Um, so families should never pay more than 30% of their income on housing. And so if I'm making $14 an hour, I can only afford a unit that um, costs me about $700 a month. And so um, there's been great, tremendous efforts to uh, bring in some additional rentals that are affordable, mm -hmm. some wonderful projects, uh, Blanford Station, Cran uh, Crawford Station. Um, we are obviously very interested in home ownership and making sure home ownership is affordable and anything that we can do to make sure that families succeed. So an average mortgage payment with a Habitat homeowner just for principal is about $350 a month. So they're just paying for the cost of the materials and the land. Um, and uh, so we really help stabilize a family by making that mortgage affordable to them uh, for them to be stable as they travel on through life and all the things that happen as life happens. Of course, uh, the real estate market and some of the headwinds uh, with respect to real estate and construction have been very much in the news uh, over the course of the past year. We know how hot the real estate market is and the fact that that is driving up prices. Uh, so uh, again, that just exacerbates the problem, as you were talking about, uh, in terms of affordability. But also, uh, construction costs have really skyrocketed over the uh, past year. Is that something that impacts you just as it does any other builder? It really does. Um, and so we're really trying to roll the dice because there's so much fluctuation in the market. Mm -hmm. um, we have the two more homes we want to build um, this fall. We have an amazing partnership coming up with Workbrow Fabco, who's building a whole house of their own. And so we're really just timing uh, is critical. Of course, we have great partners, Northwest Masonry, National Lime and Stone and others, uh, and McNaught McKay that really help us with material costs. 
Um, and then the volunteer labor also helps us reduce those costs. Uh, but we have felt the impact this spring of the increased lumber uh, costs on our project. Um, our work is extremely important. We've had some extremely generous donors to help us get launched this year. Uh, and so we, we are building, we are going forward and our projects are, are, are going, but yeah, we're feeling it. Uh, so <laughs> we need everybody's help. Yeah, underscoring the need uh, for more volunteers, uh, more donors, uh, and so on. And I'm wondering, with respect to uh, volunteers particularly, um, I, I kind of promised myself that I was going to not talk about the uh, pandemic uh, on today's show. There's going to be, I was not going to talk about it too. We're just going to set it aside for a day. But I do need to ask, uh, with respect to the uh, effects of the uh, pandemic, how did that impact uh, your operation? over the uh, past year or so? I mean, is is some of the aggressive nature of what you want to do in 2021 and, uh, because, uh, you know, the situation of 2020 kind of puts you behind a little bit? Well, um, we did not get behind uh, thanks to uh, God had lined us up that we had in place every three years, we do an all church project called an apostle build. Mm. So last fall, we were actually able, all the churches said we're in, we had safety precautions uh, to make sure everybody was great and taken care of and safe. Uh, and they made sure the homes got built last year. So uh, our, we actually served three families on schedule last year, including our largest home, the six bedroom, two bath for a family of nine. That is awesome. So we are on schedule, but uh, where we really felt it, Chris, and we're starting to really see the change is we do uh, corporate team builds where corporations purchase shifts on our site uh, in order to bring out team building activity. And that really didn't get started again until just this month. Mm. So um, we're, if you're looking to get your employees together because you've all been working at home, uh, we need you to come back out yeah, and we have team building opportunities available. So uh, we are full blown uh, going at it. And uh, uh, again, we look forward to this fall when Work Ralph Fabco is going to build one of the homes, but we still have an entire home right next to it going up side by side. That build starts August 14th and uh, we have the schedules ready and we're ready to sign your team up. So we did really feel the impact corporations all but shut down, yeah. you know, as far as engaging their team and their employees uh, but those that's back so yeah, I, we're just grateful to the entire community I uh, I like what you mentioned it's a great opportunity to sort of rebuild that uh, team uh, uh, uh sort of uh, mindset with, uh, with the community. Great way to do that uh, is to uh, pitch in and help with Habitat for Humanity. And again, the uh, dedication for those two homes coming up uh, on Saturday. Give us the uh, details on that real quickly here. Absolutely. Please join us. It's open to the public. Um, it will be a one-hour ceremony beginning at 9 a.m. with the home tour and a full hot breakfast for the public to follow. We also have a ceremonial tree planting scheduled for the Heminger Tree uh, in the backyard, and uh, you'll park at 2032 Harrison Street. Okay. Uh, we're expecting to fill the neighborhood with cars, so just follow the parking signs and come join us. Awesome work that uh, the folks continue to do at Habitat for Humanity. Finlay and Hancock County, again, Executive Director Wendy McCormick with us this morning. Wendy, thanks very much for the update. We appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Have a great day. Earlier this month, we had a report in the news about the Ohio State Highway Patrol's new distracted driving dashboard that they have unveiled on their website. 
It includes a detailed view of crashes and violations across the state of Ohio involving distracted driving and also highlights the work that troopers are doing to reduce distracted driving in the state. Now, obviously, cell phone use is the primary offender in this digital age, but it is not the only one, nor is this just a problem on the highway. Back in April of this year, which was Distracted Driving Awareness Month, we spoke with Findlay Police Department Crime Prevention Officer Brian White about this issue. It is today's Throwback Thursday. This is not a new issue, and uh, it is not always the phone that is uh, providing the distraction behind the wheel. Absolutely. Uh, the big focus is obviously cell phones. Right. Uh, that's what everyone pictures when we talk about distracted driving. Mm-hmm. But like you mentioned, distractions have been around for a long time in vehicles. Yeah. And when we're driving a car, our full attention should be on the road uh, rather than everything else going on. So mm-hmm. whether or not it's friends in the car or the little ones in the backseat bouncing around or someone putting on makeup while they're driving, there's lots of things that serve as a distraction could even be you know fiddling with the radio we always say you keep your radio on (laughs) 95.5 or on 1330 and you just leave it there you don't ever have to worry about that uh but you know eating uh you know all kinds of things that people do behind the wheel that as you say take our attention uh, away from uh the road ahead absolutely and if you go on uh, social media or youtube not when you're driving of course right and you look up distracted driving stories there's a bunch of different things out there. One of the things that I do when I go into the schools is talk with uh, kids about distracted driving. Why it's a problem, not necessarily because they're driving a car, but because maybe they're in a car with someone who is. And one of the stories I always bring up is a video of a gentleman reading a book and highlighting the book while he's driving a car. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it, it's hard to hard to imagine. You know, it, it's funny. Uh, I, I even remember a Brady Bunch uh, episode where uh, Greg gets into an accident because he's le- reading the liner notes on the back of an album that he just uh, sure. bought. So, I mean, this has been around for uh, for decades. Um, so, how do you? You know, how do you break it? Because we all do it. Uh, at some point, we allow ourselves to get uh, distracted. How do you? Well, it's one of those things that will always be around. There's yeah. no way we can curb this completely. However, bringing the attention to it now that the weather's getting better, everyone's looking to go on vacation, mm-hmm. spending more time in vehicles. It's a good time to remind everyone just to be thinking about it. There is a uh, bill in, uh, as I think it's part of the, uh, uh, the governor's uh, budget proposal that would... Uh, make this a primary offense. That, that's uh, correct. You know, using your uh, mobile device while you're behind the wheel. Absolutely, sure. Uh, current law is a secondary offense. Mm-hmm. So we would have to have another offense where not it's a um, uh, Mark Lane's violation or speed violation to stop right. someone and then address that issue with the cell phone. The phone use. And the current law only addresses the sending or receiving of a text message. Yeah. So that's the other thing that with only a very few exceptions, uh, it would be any use of a mobile device uh, behind the wheel. Now, that being said, for individuals under the age of 18, it is a primary. That's correct. Uh, For anyone under the age of 18 right now, it is a primary offense. We're just having that cell phone in their hand Mm -hmm. can uh, warrant a stop by law enforcement. Yeah. So these are the things legally that we need to be uh, made aware of. Now, all of that being said, um, I I also uh, wonder if... Is there some balance uh, that, that we need to strike, too? Because I can remember uh, back in my driver's education courses, eons ago, 
still having the conversation about uh, being hypnotized by the road and and sometimes needing to look away or sure. have some minor distractions so you don't just become sort of foggy-eyed. Sure, absolutely. I, I think everyone has been there at some point where you're just driving along, not really mm-hmm. paying attention, and you kind of snap to it, and you're like, oh, yeah. you know, you, you're yeah. aware of what's going on. What suddenly. happened during the, the past mile or two that I was behind the, the wheel? What did, did I pass something? Or Yeah. Yep, that, and this was actually a study done on uh, our interstate systems a while back about how a very long road that just goes straight and there's mm-hmm. not really much going on can actually lower you into that uh that kind that of hypnotic days. state. Yeah. So uh, again, that's the other, uh, maybe the exact opposite of the uh, of the issue, but also can be a very dangerous situation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So again, just a good reason to remind people to you know uh, pay attention, especially put the cell phones down. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably one of the biggest things, and especially in our world, everyone is. Uh, I don't want to say addicted to technology, but... No, you can say addicted to technology. I think it's universal, yeah. As soon as they hear that uh, buzzing on the phone or the ding, they have to pick it up immediately and see what's going on just to to stay connected. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, just like they say with the the slogans, that text can wait. You know, your life is more important. You know, we talk about this a lot of times in the context of highway driving where the speeds are greater and obviously, you know, speed can contribute to a, a more dramatic accident i Absolutely. guess but these things are equally in some cases even more important when we're talking about city driving i, I would say it's more pressing yeah. in the city i think everyone is kind of familiar that when you're driving that fast your attention needs to be on the road but when we get in town speeds are lower we're not really thinking let our about guard it down. yeah yeah absolutely yeah. Let our guard. and we're closer to home we're we're more safe. Mm-hmm. We feel secure. And and we think because of a slower speed, and I have to admit, I, I've been guilty of this, uh, whereas on the highway, I wouldn't think of reaching for my phone. You know, that ding goes off and you just kind of instinctively reach for it. When you're in town, you don't think because the speeds are slower, but there's a lot more things you can bump into. That's true. Yeah. Uh, when we're talking pedestrians or right. bicyclists, absolutely. you're not going to normally... <laughs> hopefully find those on the interstate system but right. in town absolutely yeah, yeah. our uh, conversation with uh, Findlay Police Department Crime Prevention Officer Brian White from April of this year on the topic of distracted driving it is today's throwback Thursday and by the way circling back to uh, the report that we mentioned in the news uh, earlier this month the Ohio High, uh, Ohio State Highway Patrol's distracted driving dashboard is now live on their website we have that linked up at our webpage in Go to goodmornings.net to learn more. On the subject of distracted driving this morning, travel is becoming extremely popular uh, this summer, of course, as America opens back up. Summer driving season, millions of people hitting the road for vacation destinations. It is critical to drive safely and free of distractions. But especially for young drivers who be hitting the road this summer, the natural comfort level that they have with technology combined with the invincibility complex of youth can be a deadly combination. Enter Project Yellow Light, a scholarship competition where teens and young adults uh, reach out to their peers with a potentially life-saving message. Now in its 10th year, we are joined by founder Julie Garner. And Julie, the numbers are dramatic and, and really drive home the point that this is a very real issue, especially for young drivers. Yes, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, it continues to be one of the leading causes of death of our youth in this country and car crashes. And with this age group, 
the largest proportion of car crashes are typically due to distractions, which are totally preventable. And that's why we are so driven to get the word out to our young youngest drivers to be careful on the road. Talk a little bit about the background of Project Yellow Light, uh, how and why it was created, and and as we mentioned, you're now in your your tenth year. Uh, talk about this project over the course of the past decade. Uh, we founded this project when my son Hunter uh, was killed at the age of sixteen due to a car crash. And it pretty much killed me as well as my husband and daughter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that point, we found out that car crashes were the leading cause of death at that time of our youth. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Car crashes? And so we knew we had to do everything in our power to prevent other young people, prevent his friends from dying needlessly due to a crash. And also, we wanted to keep his name alive. So we started this project in his high school. And just a few years in, we were taken to a national level when we partnered with the Ad Council. And we're celebrating our 10th year with the Ad Council on a national competition. And we are just so delighted to be able to continue this and getting this word out. As we mentioned, a uh, key component of what you do is this scholarship competition uh, for public service announcements uh, aimed at educating young adults on the dangers of uh, distracted driving, particularly texting and driving. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, that competition and your latest winners and how they uh, took on this topic to drive that message home. Yes, thank you. Project Yellow Light is a nationwide scholarship competition, as you mentioned, for high school juniors and seniors, as along with college students, two different levels, to create public service ads that promote safe driving with an emphasis on not messaging and driving, such as texting and such, anything using a handheld device. Mm -hmm. And we ask them to create these ads either through video, radio, or billboard. So there's three components. They can apply to all three for that matter. And to help sh share that message of being careful on the road with their peers and to help save lives. And, you know, we just feel like that giving them a voice in this critical matter and giving them ownership of the problem will help get the message out peer-to-peer and their voices resonate with one another in a way that we as adults sometimes miss the mark. You know, and I, I think that's really a, a big part of the uh, attraction for me here as I look at this is that, you know, it, a message is always more powerful when it comes from your peers. And, and obviously, there are no shortage of messages out there discouraging distracted driving and texting and driving and so on, but it does drive the point home when that message is not coming from adults or from, from law enforcement. It's coming from uh, those peers one-to-one. Uh, -one. And I would also imagine that they, uh, through the years you have seen uh, some of the uh, messages that come out through this campaign uh, take a unique approach to driving that message home that maybe adults or law enforcement uh, might not necessarily think of. Yes, I, I totally agree with that. In fact, you know, so, so many of the uh, messages that we saw prior to starting this up was an, uh, an authoritative figure kind of wagging their right. finger at yeah. someone or talking down to our youth. 
So we give the youth the creative license to kind of take this on however they choose, uh, be it using humor or being serious or animation or doing a video, a uh, rap video type thing, whatever they choose, as long as it's in good taste and it kind of comes from their heart. And that seems to connect with their peers in a way that we as adults just can't touch. And it's been so effective and we're so proud of all of our winners this year and previous winners and just, you know, there's so much talent in this age group. And, um, and we're just so proud. I would imagine a number of times you look at some of the uh, entries, not just the winning entries, but uh, the entries uh, in this and say, uh, wow, I, I never would have thought of uh, trying to deliver this message uh, in this way or focusing on, on this uh, aspect uh, of the message. It, it certainly is a unique perspective, I'm guessing, in, in that respect. And, you know, that's another point is that to me, you know, obviously we choose winners each year who not only get a scholarship but have their work shared nationwide, which is incredible. But to me, every single person who takes part is a winner because it's so much bigger than winning money or having your work shared. Right. It's about having a voice and making a difference and saving lives. And ultimately, it just doesn't get any bigger than that. Yeah. And, and to that end... Uh, talk a little bit about where uh, folks can find uh, resources to get involved. Again, as we head into the summer season and people are traveling more this year than certainly uh, last year, this is uh, always a, uh, a message that we have to reinforce. Where do we learn more about the campaign and Project Yellow Light? Well, one of the main places is to go to our site, projectyellowlight.com, to see the winning PSAs and learn how to enter next year's contest, which opens up in October, on the 31st of October. But also through our partners, our amazing partners, the Ad Council, AT&T, Elephant Insurance, Clear Channel Outdoor, iHeartMedia, NHTSA, uh, Noise, and WKRN. All of these partners help us not only with funding and that type of support, but they also are able to spread the words. And you can hear hear about us through our partners and also at our website, projectyellowlight.com. It is a message that we cannot hear enough. Again, uh, Project Yellow Light founder Julie Garner with us this morning. Julie, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you for helping us spread the word. I really appreciate you. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. Uh, actually, kind of a uh, light day in the broken news. Not a whole lot of uh, dumb criminals, uh, necessarily. Uh, but some interesting <clears throat> and noteworthy stories uh, on the odd and unusual side. Uh, in Louisiana the other day, <laughs> this is a great story. Some people know how to find the silver lining better than others. A motorist in Louisiana was not about to let being stuck in traffic for five hours spoil his day. After a wreck involving multiple 18-wheelers spilled about 50 to 60 gallons of diesel fuel and shut down the Bonnet Carey spillway for about five hours on Tuesday. One man who was stuck in traffic on a bridge uh, over the spillway decided <laughs> that he was going to make the best of it, grabbed his fishing pole uh, from out of the back of his truck and cast his line over the side of the bridge. <laughs> 
there's there's video from a local TV station of the guy fishing off the side of the bridge in the middle of a traffic jam. <laughs> uh, the report goes on to say that fortunately there were no injuries as a report of the accident, so uh, that is good news. And the, it doesn't say. Unfortunately, we we don't know uh, if the uh, intrepid angler caught anything for dinner that night, but. When life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. There's a perfect example. I love that. I have been stuck in traffic jams uh, over the years where uh, off the where where people get outside and start like tossing the frisbee around on the side of the highway or <laughs> something like that. But fishing off the side of the bridge in the middle of a traffic jam. That one's pretty good. Uh, elsewhere in the broken news this morning. Some say life is just a game, and at Ralph's Tavern in Worcester, Massachusetts, they took that saying literally. Uh, They were accepting for two hours um, the other day. uh, This was yesterday. For two hours yesterday, the the folks at Ralph's Tavern accepted Monopoly money as legal tender. <laughs> Part of their attempt to be included in a localized version of the Monopoly game. Uh, the bar says customers who visited the business between 4, uh, 4 p.m. and 6 p.m., kind of the, the happy hour yesterday, could use Monopoly money to pay the $5 cover charge. And uh, the play money was also accepted for hot dogs, uh, tickets in a special raffle they had set up. And they also accepted Monopoly money for non-alcoholic Jello shots. <laughs> you know what they call non-alcoholic Jello shots? Jello. Um, they uh, are are quick to point out that state laws barred the establishment from accepting Monopoly money for actual alcoholic beverages at the bar, but everything else. <laughs> They were taking Monopoly money. I love it. Uh, This is kind of odd and unusual. Hopefully this guy is going to be okay. But a Washington state man is listed in critical condition after flying his kite at a local park. Bremerton police say the man was flying a makeshift kite when it drifted into high energy transmission lines the steel cable and fishing rod that he was using to fly the kite caused the man to be shocked, giving him severe burns. He was taken to a local hospitals, uh, local hospital, and officials have warned him never to fly kites near power lines. That should be something that you inherently know. I mean, if you're going to go fly a kite, oh, that's a wonderful thing to do on a lovely summer afternoon. But you probably should not do that near... Uh, High voltage power lines, uh, high energy transmission line. Just not smart. Anyway, I hope he'll be okay. Probably won't do that again. And finally, in the uh, broken news this morning, because we always have to have a story out of Florida, and I apologize for the uh, nature of this story, but this was just too weird to pass up. A Florida doctor is being fined after performing surgery on a patient's incorrect testicle. The Yes, that's right. He performed surgery on the wrong testicle of a patient. Miami Herald reports that Tampa urologist Dr. Raul Fernandez Crespo met with a patient in September of 2019 
to uh, remove some enlarged veins that were causing discomfort. The doctor who was supposed to perform the procedure on the left instead started the operation on the right. During the procedure, the doctor realized his mistake and began operating on the other one. But the doctor was ordered to pay a $2,500 fine and other costs because of his error. That is not of all of the mistakes that you could make as a doctor. That would be one that I would want to avoid. (laughs) That would be one that you really, really, really don't want to make. There you go. That is today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veterans Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. It's the WFIN Virtual Car Show. Get them out, shine them up, and upload a pic of your classic, and we'll post it to WFIN.com for everybody to see. In addition, we'll have an online car show calendar so that you know when and where all the area shows are. It's chrome and horsepower on display online. The WFIN Virtual Car Show and Calendar. Thanks to Details Auto Spa, Loritz Chevrolet Cadillac, and 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. Time for today's daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. Um, the, the, uh, the number one thing that many people, the uh, number one activity that many people in this country uh, are most excited to resume when COVID-19 restrictions ease, uh, music concerts or music festivals. 58% of those in a new survey, say that is the number one thing that they look forward to going back to a, a music concert, 58%. Three in five people said that they remember every second of the very first live concert they ever attended. You remember the first concert you attended? Uh, three out of five, 60%, uh, say they remember vividly the very first live concert they ever attended and 56 percent remember how happy they felt so it's probably no surprise that that is one of the things that we are most looking forward to resuming uh post-pandemic so this study of 2,000 people across the u.s the uk france germany spain the netherlands india and south korea they asked people about the iconic music moments that they would have loved to see in person. And the number one uh, moment, I thought this was interesting, number one moment was Elton John's performance of Candle in the Wind at the funeral of Princess Diana, cited by 31% of the respondents. Kind of interesting. The Beatles' final concert on the rooftop of uh, Apple... Uh, the Apple studios, 28% cited that iconic event and the Rolling Stones jam session in Hyde park was cited by 28% as the top iconic music moments that people would have loved to have witnessed in person. I would have guessed maybe Woodstock would be right up there. I I have to think that that was probably on the list. Uh, Jimi Hendrix performance of uh, the national anthem at Woodstock uh, would have been right up there. 
I, I was thinking about this. I think the one iconic moment that I would have loved, one iconic music moment that I would have loved to have witnessed in person, the recording of We Are the World, the night that all of those music stars, just an incredible collection of music stars got together in the studio and recorded We Are the World. I would have loved to have been there for that. Wouldn't that have been awesome? That is just, anyway, kind of interesting stuff there in today's daily download. You know, we were talking yesterday about the fact that the United States is becoming a more diverse nation and that it's natural to be a little bit apprehensive of change and the unfamiliar. Well, for nearly 30 years, the Nissan Foundation has awarded more than $13 million in grants to over 150 organizations that focus on the education about diversity in American culture. Uh, Parul Bajaj is executive director of the Nissan Foundation with us this morning to talk about the importance of promoting social change and starting that conversation in the community. Uh, Parul, first of all, thanks for uh, being with us this morning. And I, I, I would have to guess just from the name that there is some ethnic diversity there. What is what is your background, just out of curiosity? Good morning, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm actually uh, Indian. So my parents immigrated to the United States from New Delhi in 1980. So you uh, know firsthand uh, about uh, this uh, growing diversity uh, in the country. And explain from your point of view why it is necessary to understand these different cultures within the community. That's right, Chris. I do understand it firsthand, and I think it's what makes me so passionate about the work that I get to do through the Nissan Foundation. As you mentioned, um, our, our nation is growing in diversity, and it's so important that we, um, as neighbors, focus on what unites us rather than what divides us, because truly, we are more alike than we realize. So taking the opportunity to understand um, where your neighbors come from, listening to their stories, listening to their hearts, and appreciating their differences is what is going to build stronger community. And I know that this this has turned into a politically charged issue, I suppose, like everything else does in, in this country sometimes. But there's there's really no reason that this has to be. I mean, you're going to find that there are uh, individuals across the political spectrum within every group. No group is exclusively liberal or exclusively conservative or exclusively anything. And I don't want to get too deep into the politics here, but this is not about politics. We can and we should be looking looking at this um, holistically, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah, this certainly is just down to the most basic level, the human issue more than anything else, and understanding that we are all alike. Um, We are more alike than we realize, and the things that make us different are the things that make our society beautiful. So how do people start to make this change and start these conversations to understand these different cultures? Because they are in every community. Uh, how, do we, uh, how do we start down that path? Yeah, I think change happens at an individual level, Chris. I think the first step is to listen and to, to really hear one another and be aware of the issues and the needs and the changing um, landscape of your community. And the second thing is to not be afraid to reach out and engage the individuals and organizations who uh, may not look like you, may not think like you, and you can leave that positive change, and then you will inspire others to do the same. You know, to give you a little bit of background on the Nissan Foundation, we've been around for nearly 30 years. The foundation was created in 1992 
when the company's headquarters were located in Southern California. At the time, um, you know, the Rodney King trial verdict and the subsequent riots had overtaken the city, and that mm. was happening right in our backyard. And our leadership and our employees looked at one another, and we decided that we wanted to be a part of the solution. So the company created a private endowment, and the focus, the singular focus of the Nissan Foundation ever since 1992 has been to support educational programs that promote a greater respect and understanding of our country's diverse cultural heritage. And since then, we have supported more than 150 organizations that are doing this critical work, you know, going deep into those local communities and helping to change mindset one person at a time. And you recently uh, awarded uh, more uh, grants uh, through the uh, Nissan Foundation this year. Uh, what? Give us some examples, some of the uh, uh, nonprofit and community organizations which received those grants and some of the work that they are doing. So we, this morning, announced seven, nearly $700,000 worth of grants to 28 organizations um, that are based in the communities where we make contributions. So those communities are, you know, the greater Atlanta, Atlanta area, Middle Tennessee, Dallas, Texas, the New York City area, southeastern Michigan, southern California, and central Mississippi. And, you know, as I mentioned, we've got 28 of them, so I'll hit a few of the highlights. <laughs> um, you know, one of our newest, one of our newest grantees this year is the Foundation for Mississippi History, and they're going to use their grant dollars to ensure that all students in the state of Mississippi have the opportunity to visit the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum and the Museum of Mississippi History at least once during their elementary education, mm. regardless of their ability to pay. Another organization that we give to is the Interfaith Leadership Council of Detroit, and they use their dollars for a program called Journeys in Religious Diversity. And students in that program attend a series of field trips to Hindu, Jewish, Christian, Muslim houses of worship. And while they're there, they're learning not just about the religion, but the cultures associated with those religions as well. So our nonprofit partners are doing a lot of great work. Um, another new one this year is actually the YWCA of Nashville and Middle Tennessee. And they've got a great program. It's a monthly program called the Stand Against Racism Lunch and Learn Series. And they um, are, at this time, they're virtual workshops that will soon move back to in-person that are fostering greater understanding of systemic racism, racial and social inequity, and how that impacts our communities. Um, and what can be done. So they give concrete steps of what can be done to impact positive change. You know, what I think is really interesting about the ones that you mentioned, and I'm assuming many of the others uh, as well, is that they are not necessarily um, uh, reinventing the wheel in the sense that what they are doing is is connecting individuals with resources that already exist within the community and just ex uh, expanding that exposure more than anything else. That's right, Chris. It's connecting people to what they already know yeah. and teaching them to just be more intentional in their conversations and in their connections. And in that sense, many communities have those resources available. All we have to do is seek them out. What are some of the uh, criteria uh, for a nonprofit that would like to apply for a grant? And where can we get more information uh, about the uh, foundation, the work that you do? Sure. So the criteria for applying is that the organization must be based in one of the seven cities that I mentioned earlier. And the other is just to be aligned with the spirit and the mission of the Nissan Foundation. 
since day one, we've had a singular mission of promoting the value of cultural diversity, and we're looking for nonprofit partners who are doing that important work. So for more information about our application process, our 2021 grantees, and our history as well, your listeners can head to NissanFoundation.com. We'll link that up on our webpage as well. Again, uh, Parul Bajaj, Executive Director of the Nissan Foundation with us this morning and talking the importance of promotion, promoting social change and understanding uh, in a more diverse nation than ever. Parul, thanks very much for being with us uh, this morning. We appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. I enjoyed it. Have a great day. And that will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests, of course, for joining us on the program. And remember, you can get more information on all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage, that is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow as we finish up the week, big things are happening for area seniors as 50 North fully reopens with the facility expansion and renovation nearly complete. Carolyn Copas will join us with an update on that, plus more recipes from Kyra's Kitchen and lots more to do until tomorrow morning. That is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.